Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you tonight. I didn't know uh, until Neil mentioned it. Uh, I guess this is the last Thursday night meeting of your year, right? Your school year. So what that means, I guess, summer must be around the corner. Um, I know what that probably means is, I guess, finals is next week, right? <laughs> so, sorry, you got to go through finals, then you get to the summer. So, But it's good to be with you guys tonight. As Neil said, I, w- I want to talk to you tonight just briefly about the topic of uh, authentic Christianity, what it means to be a Christian. Now, I think at the time of uh, his death, no one could have imagined the impact that Jesus would end up having um, on the world. I mean, at the peak of his popularity when he was alive, he did gather crowds, crowds numbering in the thousands. But then just days before his crucifixion, of course, the crowds turned on him and they demanded uh, that he be executed. And then on the night that he was arrested, the 12 who had spent the better part of three years with him, they all fled in fear for their lives. But now, one-third of the world's population call themselves Christian, more than any other faith or belief in the world. Now, in America, it's even more. The recent polls indicate that three-quarters of the population in this nation identify themselves as Christian. But the numbers really don't tell the whole story. I would say not all is uh, well with Christianity. And one of the evidences is in a poll that I read recently. It was a, a poll of uh, non-Christians, and uh, 84% of them said that they do know a Christian personally, but only 15% of those individuals said that the lifestyle of the Christians that they know, of the believers, are any different than anyone else. Now, the idea is that anyone can say, well, I'm a Christian, or can check that box saying that they're a Christian in a poll. But the one thing that everybody seems to agree on is that being a Christian is supposed to change the way you live. It's supposed to be more than just a label that you kind of attach uh, to your name. On July 5th of 1865, the Secret Service was formed, and it was formed in response to a national threat. Now, it wasn't the threat of assassination attempts on the life of the president. That's what these guys are doing here, and that's the main job of the Secret Service now, but that's not the reason they were formed back in 1865. It wasn't uh, to counter the threat of military conflict, although it was the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was the president who formed the Secret Service to address the problem of counterfeiting. That's why the Secret Service was formed. Here's what the the bill looked kind of back at that time. And at that time, in 1865, it's estimated that about a third of the U.S. currency in circulation was counterfeit. It was fake. And the reason is because the Confederacy was trying to weaken the Union by demanding that, um, all, or by undermining all of the currency they had and printing all of these fake bills. And it really was working. People were losing confidence in the U.S. dollar because they, there were so many counterfeit bills out there, they just couldn't tell the real ones from the fake ones. The Confederacy was doing a really good job of counterfeiting. Now, I mention this because I think the same kind of thing is happening right now in the Christian faith. As I talk personally with those who are not Christians, the top reason that they often give as to why they want little or nothing to do with Christ is because they've encountered somebody who says that they're a Christian and they've been burned by that person. And now they, they don't trust the label. So the question I want to address briefly this evening is, is how, do, how can you tell fake from real when it comes to a Christian? And the purpose is not so that you can 
go out and be Christian secret service agents and identify who you think is real and who isn't. Uh, the purpose is so that you can understand, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? And so you can make your own decision and be clear on what that means. I mean, you may be kind of checking this out, and it's really helpful for you to know, what, what does it mean for me to decide to be a Christian? And if you've already made that decision, it's very important for you to continue to be really clear about what that means, because there's a lot of confusion out there right now. There's a lot of ideas that people have, different ideas about what it means to be a Christian. Now, you should, every one of you should have, I put $1 bills on the chairs in this room, so uh, did everybody get one of these? Okay, go ahead and take a look at this. And let me ask you this, are, are these real or fake? Okay, they're fake. You guys are great Secret Service agents. Um, how can you tell? What were some of the things that, that identified this as fake for you? Just shout them out. The texture. That's probably the main thing. It's like, no way does this feel like a real $1 bill. Okay, yeah, big key on the very top. For motion picture use only, okay? Uh, anything else that you noticed on this? Washington looks a little weird, doesn't he? Looks like he's swallowed something and is not sure how it's going to process or something. But he, just, he looks odd on this one. Now, now, I want you to hear very, if you don't hear anything else tonight, I want you to hear this. Do not accidentally slip these bills into your wallet or purse and try to spend these, okay? Please, I don't want to get anyone in trouble. You'll have a very different summer if you try to spend one of these. Because this, well, it would be a federal tr crime to try to, you know, pass one of these off as a real dollar bill. If you want more of these, you can buy these on Amazon in the bundles. You can actually get them in $100 bill denominations and really freak people out when they see a wad of $100 bills that you're carrying around. Now, none of you, of course, have been trained by the Treasury Department to detect counterfeit currency, but we've all uh, spent plenty of money. We've all felt plenty of uh, bills, and so we just know the difference. So the question is, in what way should a Christian be different? How could you tell a counterfeit Christian from an authentic Christian. I mean, are, and these are some of the misconceptions that are out there. Are Christians nicer than the average person? Well, that, that would be great if that was always the case, but that's not always the case. Do they sin less? Are they harder workers? Do they get better grades in school? I mean, in order to be a Christian, do you have to get like a 3.0 and above? You know, anything below that, Jesus, you know, you're not smart enough for Jesus. No. Do they drive less aggressively? A lot of people think this. You know, I've seen a lot of Jesus fishes on the back of cars driving horribly on the freeways of Southern California. Are they less fun now? That's one of the big ideas. Why do you become a Christian and then all of a sudden life just kind of, bleh, the color goes out. You don't laugh anymore. You're no fun to have a conversation with or go to anything with. Do they think less analytically about life? I mean, are they kind of, they, they just don't think clearly anymore. I mean, these are just some of the common misconceptions that are out there. These are not the identifiers of what it means to be a Christian. Now, American currency has been redesigned many different times. Here's just, I'll show you a picture of some of the versions that have uh, happened to the $100 bill over time. And the reason is because counterfeiters keep figuring out how to really make good counterfeit bills. So the Treasury Department has to keep coming up and embedding in the, in the currency new um, counter-counterfeit measures. And about every you know, 20 years or so, usually, there's another major redesign. There's actually been more recently because the counterfeiters are getting really good and the technology available at a pretty inexpensive price is getting really good. So 
So when it comes to currency, the design had to keep changing. But when it comes to what it means to be an authentic Christian, it has not changed over time. Because of the fact the Christian faith is based on what Jesus taught. And that doesn't change. This isn't Christianity version 13.8. There is only one version. It's what Jesus taught. So to find out what an authentic Christian is, you have to go back to the original documents and examine what the New Testament says a Christian is. So a great summary of a Christian is found in the New Testament book of Colossians. It was written about 20 years after Jesus was here, so very close to the period of time when he walked on the earth. It's Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. And this passage begins with these two words, if then, if then. And the idea is that if you are a Christian, then this is what's true of you. The 17 verses that follow list the identifying features that are present in the life of someone who truly follows Jesus. Now, to be an authentic Christian does not mean you are the moral elite. No, it means that you have these identifiers. These things are true of you. Now, these 17 verses are divided into three sections. We're only going to look at the first section tonight, but if you want to read on and study on your own, I just wanted to give you the three sections Uh, And each of these three sections has three identifying features in it. So there are three sets of three for a total of nine identifying marks of someone who is an authentic Christian. So this is the way these 17 verses divide. There there are the three decisions that Christians make. This is what I'm going to talk about tonight. That's verses 1 through 4. Then there are the three practices that Christians do. This, This is how being a Christian affects your daily life. It's not just a decision you make and then you go on with your life as if nothing changed. No, it begins to change the details of your life. And then the last section is the three perspectives that Christians have. This is the the angle from which they perceive relationships, they perceive money, they perceive problems, they perceive life. So this is what these 17 verses are talking about. So let's look at... um, The first section, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So I'm going to project on the screen here uh, these uh, four verses. So here, here, let me read this to you. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, the three decisions that a Christian makes are seen in three words in these four verses that precede Christ's name. And they all begin with the same letter. It's the letter W. These are the three words that you'll find in front of Christ. There is, first of all, with Christ, the first W. Then there's where Christ is. And then there's when These are the three W words that identify the three conclusions and therefore the three decisions that Christians make. This is what it means to cross the line and decide, you know what, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. So let me go through these three uh, tonight. The first one is is the word with, the first W word, with. This is the decision. I decide to attach my life to Christ. In other words, I decide to be with Christ in every area of my life. Now, with 
is a very small word that carries life-altering implications. A few years ago, my wife and I were going through security at um, Orange County Airport, and we were, you know, we were at that place where your, your carry-on is on the rollers and it's getting ready to go through the x-ray machine, and, my, and we suddenly remembered that we had forgotten some liquid in her carry-on that we hadn't put in the package and it was just going to be a problem. And so we remember that, and so I, I stepped out of line. I went over to where her carry-on bag was. I took it off um, the rollers, and I unzipped it, and I started digging through it looking for this liquid so we, we wouldn't cause a problem. Well, that alerted the TSA agent to ask my wife a very important question. TSA agent went up to my wife and said, are you with him? Now, of course, you realize what happened. The TSA agent didn't know we were married, didn't know anything about this. And all he saw was some guy step out of line, grab some lady's carry-on bag, open it up, and start rifling through it. So he asked her, are you with him? Now, I'm very grateful that my wife decided to not mess with me at all. And she just simply said, yes. It's a very simple phrase, are you with him, and a one-word answer that describes something very, very deep. You know, it was 30, a little over 32 years ago now that my wife said yes to my proposal of marriage, and she decided to be with me, to attach her life to mine. And I did the same. Now, what that means is that our lives now are forever linked together. I mean, we, we've had two children, and now we have two grandchildren, and two more grandchildren on the way. Our financial future is tied up together, and, and even divorce really can't fully unravel and untangle what happens when two people get married and have kids. She has thrown her lot in with me, and I with her. Now, when she says she's with me, and I say I'm with her, that doesn't mean we've been in the same room together for 32 years. There's been times in our life when We've been on opposite sides of the planet. But even when we've been six or 7,000 miles away from each other, I still, in what I'm doing in that day, I do, in a sense, realizing that we're still together. I am with her. Now, I didn't feel the need to explain all this to the TSA agent. <laughs> but my wife, Rebecca, is her name, being with me is a big deal with life-altering implications. And it's similar when a person decides to be with Christ. The decision to attach your life to Christ has all kinds of life-altering implications. You understand a lot of them when you make the decision, but as you move on through life, you, you discover the impact that it has is even more extensive than you could have imagined when you first made the decision. And, and the impact of deciding to be with Christ is best described in the word that's used here, to be raised with Christ. Your life is, is put on a very different trajectory when you decide to be with Christ. Your life and your future has a very different angle to it now. One that can't always be seen by the people around you. Oftentimes, as the decades go by, you see the difference more and more. In a given day, it's, it's hard to tell. Now, really, it's, again, similar to what happened to me when I got married. I as the phrase goes, married up. You know, what does that mean? Is I married over myself. I, my life improved that day I said I'd do. It really did. Not instantly, 
Not everything suddenly changed, but I, I look back over the 32 years and, and I can't even begin to explain to you how I have been blessed and how my life has benefited because I decided to be with her. My life has been elevated. And I know I'm not the only one to experience the, the raising or elevating effect that can come from this kind of attachment. You know, I know some people that married into money. You know, what that, what that means is the day they said, I do, their net worth was raised. Right? It was elevated. You know, if, if you marry someone that's smarter than you, all of a sudden, the very next day, you're making better decisions. Because you've got someone that's at least got a different perspective helping you to make a better decision. Now, the elevating effect that can occur in a marriage is a small picture of the life-raising impact that attaching your life to Jesus has. I mean, my wife is great, but she never rose from the grave great. You know, she's not that great. Only Jesus did that. And so attaching your life to him elevates you in ways that no other relationship can. Now, I could take a long time to explain all of the ways that you can be raised with Christ, all of the ways that it, it elevates you to attach your life and your future to Jesus Christ. But, but the biggest one, and the one that often gets a lot of attention, rightfully so, is that Jesus is the only one that can raise you out of the moral mess that we all find ourselves. He, he's the only one that can forgive sin. And sin, it turns out, is not just a moral oops. I mean, that's kind of the idea that's out there now. It's just kind of, hey, we all do it, oops, you know, and, and we clean it up by saying, I'm sorry, if that. Sin is a bigger deal than that. Now, you won't hear that from many people now, but this is God's perspective on it. It is the primary cause of our death because... It's what separates us from God. And God is the sustainer of life. So when we separate ourselves from God, we have caused death. And the resurrection that was celebrated just a couple of weeks ago on Easter was the moment of victory over sin and therefore the death that caused sin. That's why it was so critical that Jesus walk out of that tomb. I mean, if he didn't, it makes no sense to attach your life to a dead person. That's not going to do anything. It has to be a, a living person. So if we decide to attach our life to him, our sin is forgiven, and that changes. That changes us, both in this life and in the life to come. We decide to be with Christ when we ask him to save us, and we decide to follow him. And that changes our future, our, our future is raised. Now the second W, where. Where Christ. The decision of where is, I decide to change my values. Now I'm breaking these out as three decisions, but these really are wrapped up together. I decide to change my values. In other words, what happens if you decide to be with Christ is that over time, the list of things in your heart that are important to you begin to change. We all have a list, an invisible list in our heart. And it's, it's ranked in an order of these things are important and in this order. Now, we've probably all got similar things in our heart. We may have different orders. But for all of us, what we value, what's important to us, has been shaped by our culture. 
whatever family we were raised in, whatever culture we were raised in, they represent a set of values, a set of this is what matters, this is what really matters, and in this order. And what happens over time is what's important here on earth begins to be replaced by what's important in heaven. That The shift of values begins to occur. Now, Christians are with Christ. That's decision number one. But the question then is, okay, if you're with Christ, where is Christ? As it says here, he's in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God. That's, that's heaven. Now, we aren't there, obviously, we're here. So how does Jesus being there and us being attached to him impact where we are here and now on earth? Well, let me explain it this way. My granddaughters have lived out of state, three states away from me for the last three years. Actually, they just moved back to Southern California this week. But for the better part of three years, they've lived out of state. But even though they were three states away from where I am, that didn't stop them from having an impact on me. Three states away. Well, how do little girls have an impact on a 57-year-old man three states away? Well, my thoughts would often turn to them, even though I'm not there. And it's the same with Christ. If you decide to be with Christ, what that means is your thoughts often turn to where he is. Now, how does that affect you? Well, you begin to seek, as it says in this verse, you seek the things that are above. Let me give you an example of my granddaughters. On my own, I would never buy a children's book. I would never read a children's book. I have no interest in children's books. They're, they're, the plots are way too simple, and they're ridiculous, a lot of them. So personally, I have no value for children's books. But now I do. Now I actually find myself sometimes going into bookstores and, well, let's see what's new in the children's books department. Why, why would I care about that? Well, it's those granddaughters, you know, three states away, having their way on me here in Southern California. My granddaughters love them. So I have begun to love them. The same kind of thing happens with Jesus. Let me, let me just give you one example for me personally of a value that Jesus has that I don't naturally have, that is beginning and has begun to change me over time. I am not a fan of forgiving those who wrong me. If someone does me wrong, my natural preference is to just kind of write them off, to be done with that relationship. If they've done something really hurtful, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with them anymore. But you see, in heaven... Where Jesus is, and with Jesus himself, forgiveness is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Such a big deal that Jesus actually took on a body and came here to earth and allowed himself to be crucified to provide a way for us to be forgiven. That's a big deal in heaven. Not so much a big deal with me, but a big deal in heaven. So since I'm seeking the things that are important where he is, Well, I'm working on learning how to forgive. That's not natural to me. But over the years, it's becoming more and more true of me. Now, seeking the things that are above, it doesn't mean you you just kind of work up some emotional, you kind of elevate your emotional feeling for something ethereal that has no content to it. No. 
It means you, as it says here in this verse, you set your mind, you, you, you orient your thinking on the things that are above. You choose. Set means you choose. You don't just let your mind kind of wander around like it often does. You, you make a choice over and over again to seek the things that are above. What that means is we, we begin to learn how to think differently. Now, before we decide to be with Jesus, we just made our own decisions based on whatever we thought was best. You know, we come up to a decision. It's like, well, I don't know. What do I want to do? Let me gather the facts. Let me talk to a few friends. But in the end, it's my call. I'm just going to do what I want to do. But after we decide to be with Christ, it's kind of like after I got married. I mean, I was a single guy. like, I'd wake up on Saturday. It's like, boom, I'd go and do what I want to do. And I'd be out the door and realize, oh, I'm married. I have to check on things and find out what we're going to do today. Because I just can't make a decision by my own. We're in this together. So now, after we decide to be with Christ, we set our minds to make decisions that fit with his thinking, what he values, what's important to him. You see, seeking is an activity of priority. It says seek the things that are above. You're only going to put in seeking level effort for something that's important. And the treasure on the top of everybody's seeking list is happiness. And that's what everybody seeks. They may be seeking something different, but behind whatever the different things are that everybody is seeking is the hope that and the understanding that if I were to find this, it would make me happy. That's what we all seek. We want, we want to be happy. But that search proves to be pretty elusive. I mean, there are, it's not because there aren't any treasure maps out there promising to you know, guide us to where X marks the spot of happiness. Oh, there's all kinds of treasure maps. All kinds of ideas about, you know, this. If you could get this, if you could do this, if you could have that, you'd be happy. But the X that marks every spot on every one of these maps, what's common to all of them is they mark some spot here on earth. You know, some accomplishment. If, if you could accomplish this, oh, my goodness, you'd be so happy. If you, if you could possess this, oh, you'd be so happy. It, it, it could be a person. If you could be in this relationship, oh, my goodness. You, I mean, you'd be blissed out the rest of your life. You'd be happy. But what's common, especially if, if you talk to the individuals that are a little further down the road with you, a little further on this treasure search, what's common, the common intelligence that you'll hear is, once you arrive at the spot, whatever it is, wherever X marks the spot, whatever treasure map you've chosen, what is common, the common experience is either A, it's not there, it didn't make you happy, or B, it didn't make you happy long enough. It turned out to be more of a buzz than a happiness. It's like, yeah, this was great for a day or a month or maybe a year, and, and now you know what? It's just not, I'm not happy anymore. And the reason for that common experience is that the treasure that everybody's seeking, the happiness that everybody's seeking, isn't buried anywhere here. As it says in this, this verse, the key to your life is hidden. Where is it hidden? With Christ, in God. Where is he? Not here. So Christians all agree with everybody 
that the treasure to life is hidden. It's not just floating around, making everyone happy all the time. It's hidden. But one of the things that's true about authentic Christians is they know that it's not hidden anywhere here. Now, just imagine for a moment how much time and money and effort that one fact could save you in life. People will invest decades on one treasure map only to get to X and bury and cover the treasure and discover, you know, it doesn't really make me that happy or doesn't make me happy for very long. Now, if you had that intelligence at your age, just imagine how much more time and how much more money could be spent after the things that really matter, not just your personal treasure shirts. It's going to come up to disappoint you anyway. That's a huge advantage. Now, Christians agree that the treasure is hidden, but it's not hidden here. Why, Why do they agree with that? Well, as it says in this verse, it says they have died. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I consider myself a Christian, a Christ follower, and I'm walking around very much alive. I know a bunch of you decided to do this, and you appear very much alive to me. So what does it mean you've died? What does it mean I've died? Well, you see, when you decide to be with Christ, his death becomes a type of a death for you. Not a physical death, but you die to here. That doesn't mean you don't ever get jobs here and you you don't eat food here and you don't drink water here and you don't breathe air here. No, what that means is that you're still living here, but you're no longer trying to find the hidden treasure here. One of the things that's interesting is as people get older, as they get closer to death, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this or or known, known many people that are, you know, in the latter decade or so of their life, but what's common to all of them is that many of them discovered that the real important things in life are invisible. They're not the visible stuff. And so what happened, Christians just go through the clarifying process that death can bring just a little earlier in life while there's still time to build a different kind of life. So an authentic Christian has decided to be with Christ. They've decided to attach their life to him. And then they've decided that because of where Christ is, they're going to have to begin to change what's important. And they're they're going to build a very different life and pursue different things because some different things are important to them. Because they know the treasure isn't buried anywhere here. So they, they have a different set of values. And then the last W is when. When Christ. And this decision is, I decide to live for God's larger purposes. As it says... When Christ, who is your life, appears. You know, Christ said that one day he would reappear again on earth. No longer hidden from physical view as he is now. Well, when's that going to be? Well, we don't know. There's been a lot of debate on this over the years. People keep trying to come up with dates and they're always wrong. But one thing everybody agrees on, it hasn't happened yet. When he does, it says, when he does, then those who are with him will appear with him in glory. What does that mean? Let me define glory. Webster defines glory as a beautiful and bright light. And that's how we use the word glory, appropriately so. You know, that's why oftentimes if, if you're 
Uh, look at a sunset. You know, oftentimes I'll be driving down PCH, and if I see a sunset, it's just a great description of that's glorious. Not only is it bright because it's the sun, but it's beautiful. You know, you need to have both eye catching, you know, head turning, brightness, and beauty. I mean, if it's bright and ugly, that's not glorious. If it's beautiful, no one can see it, that's not glorious. It, it's got to be bright and it's got to be stunning. It's got to be beautiful. That's glory. And so when we glorify a person, it's got to have the two elements. We've got to turn the spotlight on them. I mean, it could be an actual spotlight, you know, like in the Oscars. Or it could just mean that we, we all turn our attention to them. And we glorify them. We, we recognize some accomplishment, something, something that we applaud. You see both elements. Attention, you know, brightness, and beauty, something good. That's, we glorify a person. Now, these lesser glories point to the final moment of glory, the capital G glory, when the lights go up on God. And everyone says, that's stunning. That's amazing what God has done. Now, right now, we may decide to give glory to God for the beauty of a sunset. But what happens is then after we get done seeing the beauty of a sunset, then we see some tragedy that's gone on in our own life or some tragedy that's gone on in the world. And the light begins to dim, and we think, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know if that's very good or that's very beautiful because our world is a mixture of tremendous beauty and, and a lot of ugliness, too. And so we wonder about God. And the reason we wonder about God is because most people tend to think of God as kind of a cosmic butler waiting to be summoned by the people of this world to make the circumstances of their life better. That really, that we just kind of think. If something has gone bad, why didn't God make it better? I mean, that, that's what he does, right? But it turns out God is not a cosmic butler. God is the author of a very, very, very great and a very, very, very long story. And like any real story, there are lots of ups and downs. You know, that's why when you're reading a book or you're watching a movie and things get bad, you don't just close the book or walk out of the theater in disgust. No, you know this is just one part of the story. That's the way stories are. And if it's a good story, by good story I mean one that will sell books and will sell movie tickets, you know that before the book is over or the two hours are up, that the hero is going to make all the wrongs right and the audience is going to applaud. You see, that's the moment of glory. And before that moment of glory, boy, it can look pretty bad. Like it did. You know, three days before the resurrection of Christ. I mean, that Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the grave, boy, it was all light and all beauty. It was all glory. But that was preceded by death and despair and darkness. And now we await the final display of God's glory when Jesus returns visibly to wrap up history and right every single wrong. And authentic Christians live for that moment. Now, what I mean by that is they live for that moment not by spending their days staring longingly at the sky. 
but by living their larger, but by living rather their personal stories for the larger story that God is writing. What does that mean? You know, before someone decides to attach their life to Christ, they are writing a story. But it's their own personal story. It's actually a little, a little paperback novel, maybe a booklet. You know, we all naturally want to write our own story. The advantage of writing your own story is you're the star of your own story. The problem is it's a much smaller story than God's story. And the biggest problem is we don't have the power to bend reality to our will. So what that means is our stories tend to be works of fantasy, works of fiction. Stuff we write and then we have to erase because it didn't work out that way. But you see, when a person decides to be with Christ, they decide to live for a larger purpose than themselves. They're not the star of their own story. What that means is they're, they're grateful to have their names and their lives included in the large story that God is writing. And what this means, and this is very important to understand, that means that Christians are willing to wait for everything to work out in their own personal life because they know that they're living in the middle of the great story and not at the end of it. The middle of stories is very different than the end of stories, right? I mean, it's really hard to live in the middle of a story because in the middle of a story, you don't know how it's all going to work out. And you've got all kinds of questions. I mean, maybe some of the questions you might have is, am I going to graduate? Well, I don't know. I hope so. You have to get through finals next week and maybe a few years after that. What will my GPA be? Work hard, but I don't know. You don't know. Will you be able to get a good job? Mutz? I hope so. I mean, you're at a great school and Hey, who knows what the economy is going to do? For how much money? Oh, that's a great question. Who will you marry? Well, that's really going to change your life. Wouldn't that be great to know? I don't know. Yeah, you, you don't know unless you're engaged. Will you get married? I don't know. Will you have children? Don't know. If you have children, what, what are they going to be like? What's going to happen to them? If you get sick, what, will you recover from whatever illness you've got? If you're struggling with sadness, will you ever stop feeling so bad? You know, everyone in this room is living with questions like these. Maybe not these exact questions, but questions like these that we have at a deep level that we're asking, well, how is this going to work out? What's going to happen to me? To my future. And Christians are not those who get a higher level of service from God in answering these questions. That's very important to understand. Some people think that you decide to become a Christian and you get a bigger bell to ring for service, right? That now because you're a follower of Christ, God says, oh, well, let's scramble and give A-level service to this person. That's not what it means to be a Christian. What that does mean is you get a bigger story to fit these questions and the answers to these questions into. So even if they don't get answered the way you want, your life is still as meaningful and as valuable and as important as if they did get answered the way you want it to. Because you're part of the big story. And the, 
And the big deal of being in a big story is you get a page. You get it. Your name is in the story. That's the big deal. That's bigger than did you get a great little paperback novel written about you where you were the star? No, you get to be in the bigger story. So what this means is that Christians do not demand favorable answers to the questions of this life in order to be okay. Now, like anyone, they would prefer positive answers. But they have decided that the hidden treasure of life isn't buried anywhere on this planet. It's not ultimately experienced in in anything that occurs here. The hidden treasure is Christ. And he hasn't come back yet to wrap up history and put everything right. So, of course, life is a mixture of good and bad. And, of course, justice is a hit-and-miss proposition. Christians never look up at the current scoreboard and consider it to be the final score. They don't know how much is left on the scoreboard, but they know that's not the final score. Why? Jesus hasn't come back yet to blow the whistle on time and say, all right, time's up. That's not the final So they're willing to wait for the time, as it says in this verse, when Christ, who is their life, not just their buddy, not just an idea they like, but who is at the very center of their life, is the organizing principle around which they do life. Well, if that's true, then they can wait. They may not like it, but they can. So what that means is while most of the heads of this world are turning to ooh and to awe and to boo and to hiss, the things we can see, Christians are patiently building a life that will be truly head-turning when Christ appears. Right now, it's like, I don't know what those people are doing. But when Christ returns, it'll be seen for what it is. And as Christians, authentic Christians, we live for that moment. So these three decisions are the foundation of the Christian life. Let me just review them real quickly. With Christ, I decide to attach my life to Christ. I, I raise my future and my eternity. Where Christ... I decide to change my values, to value what heaven values. And when Christ, I decide to live for God's larger purposes. I'm willing to wait for everything to work out. So what I want to do is uh, I want to ask you to read with me Colossians 3, 1 through 4. We're just going to read this together. You stay seated and we'll read it together. And when we get to a W word, one of these three W words, I want, to, I want to emphasize just kind of a little oomph. I mean, no, no screaming or yelling, but just kind of a little extra push as we say these W words. So there they are. They're in yellow. You should be able to identify them. So just join me as we read this together. So let's go. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I'm going to wrap us up in prayer. And what I want to do is I'm just going to pray a prayer that reflects these decisions. Seeing as this is uh, the last week of, of the school year for you guys, um, and if you've already made this decision, then just join me as I will be. And this, this is a reminder of what we have decided to do. Uh, if you 
are at the point where you decide, hey, I want to I I do this. Well, then just allow these words to reflect your heart. But just join me in prayer. Let me pray. Jesus, the, uh, the evidence surrounding us is pretty clear. We are a mixed bag. We, we have a lot about us that's good and noble, and there's a lot about us that's not good and, and not noble. We have the capacity to, well, to really do damage to ourselves and to, to hurt the people closest to us. But the evidence about you is also very clear. There, there is absolutely no way for us to really explain the miracles you did, and particularly your resurrection, and all the evidence surrounding, all the historical evidence that surrounds that event. There's just no way to explain that away in any other way other than you really are who you claim to be. You, you are God in flesh, come to earth to save us, to raise us in our eternity. And so today we, we declare that we are, we're with you. What we mean by that is, is we attach our lives to you. We put you at the very center. We accept the forgiveness that only you can give. We ask you to be our Savior, not just the Savior, but ours. And we decide that we're going to follow you as Lord. We're going to figure out as best we can as we face decisions what your thoughts are, what you value, and make decisions in line with that. And we're going to seek the things that are above and make it our goal to do your will on earth as it's done in heaven. None of us are going to do this perfectly, but that, that is magnetic north on the compass of our heart. That's what we want to do. Help us face the challenges of the day, especially when the questions that we have are not answered in the way we'd like them answered, while we await for you to return. And we will get the chance to see you in all of your glory and all of your splendor and we will get a chance to see everything that is wrong made right. Until that day, we ask for your help to be patient. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.